Just to go back to what you asked me was, I, I like to, I, I want athletes to be able to pattern in all nasal breathing at rest during the day and the night. Then what biomechanically, how should the breath look? It should, yes, the belly should rise, followed by the chest. Then your exhale should let go. So if you listen to what I do here, So that was a breath that was in through my nose and out of my mouth. As I inhaled through the nose, my belly rose, then my chest rose. As I exhaled, it was just recoiled. It just <sighs> fell out of my mouth with an open jaw. And you will be amazed at the amount of athletes who can't do that. That was performance coach and breathing specialist, Leo Ryan. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Thanks for being here today. So breathing is one of those things that critically important. Uh, you have to do it to live. You do it a lot, 20,000 breaths a day. It just might not be one of those things that, especially for those of you listening, and, and many are I know who are very attuned to speed and power outcomes, reactivity outcomes, and, and things that um, we see on that end of things on the field of play. Uh, it's it may not be then quite as a, a quantitative thing uh, as you put five inches on your vertical by doing a French contrast program or you increased your speed through oscillatory isometrics or these things. It's in that sense, it might be a little more subtle, uh, but from an energetic perspective and a mental clarity perspective, it is a very big rock and very apparent and breathing has the, op the ability to massively impact these areas. That's what this show is all about. If we can't it's hard to really do justice to the athletic body, human performance, if we don't cover the full spectrum. Breathing is a topic that I haven't um, dove into nearly enough, and it, it controls so many things uh, from our recovery between bouts and, and sets of sprints or sprint endurance uh, or, or game, you know, game movements and, and, re and recovering our energy to recovering from training session to training session, how our body adapts and what type of state we're in. Are we in a recovery state? How well are we putting energy back in the cell to our mental state? And which there is a profound impact between breathing and mental state and performance state. And I wanted to do a podcast that really, uh, for me, I, I like just hearing like just hearing things. I, I, I'm always intrigued. Like I see people running with their mouth taped or I've done lots of breathing, different breathing uh, techniques myself. Uh, but I always want to know more about the why, the mechanics and hear about it from someone who's really been through it all and has synthesized um, the, the common themes of each technique and what are we doing and what's going on here. Uh, again, breathing, it can really transform your training, recovery, and mental state, mental clarity. And that means it's important not only to athletics, but health and life itself. And it's those intersections that I just love talking about. So uh, our guest is Leo Ryan. Leo is the founder of innatestrength.com. Uh, he has achieved a prolific amount of education, human performance and breath work. Uh, he's studied from, I believe, more than 70 breathing techniques, um, such as um, the Wim Hof, Butenko method, Oxygen Advantage, and clearly tons of others. He's been a coach and mentor uh, to many elite athletes and has worked with coaches to Olympians, UFC fighters, and world champions. So he, he is, uh, Leo is not only a so Leo is both a breathing instructor and a physical performance coach working with a wide range of clients. 
today's show today's show was a little bit longer than average, uh, largely because one, I just don't know that much, uh, really holistically, about the breath and breathing. So I had a ton of questions for Leo, but it was really cool because we were really able to get into a, a lot of really important elements. So we start with a fun story of Leo's running a marathon on zero run training, just uh, founding the pace on the breath. So he'll get into that. But some of the big rocks that we cover in the show are different categories and classifications of breathing, nose breathing versus mouth breathing, and different levels of that, depending on what your athletic goal is. Um, We're going to get into breathing as a readiness assessment and using that prior to a session, performance breathing versus recovery breathing, breathing's impact on the mental state and how to manage that through different techniques, diaphragm release techniques, and much more. This is super comprehensive. It's a really important topic. Um, And breathing is becoming more popular now for good reason, although it's been around for, or breath training has been around for thousands of years and the martial arts and everything. But as it's becoming more apparent in the athletic performance uh, space and as well as the the general health space, I wanted to do a show that really gets to the Um, that really gets to it, that really covers this. And I hope to do a lot more of these. So I'm super thankful that I had the opportunity to talk with Leo today. Uh, We're going to get to this. It's going to be an awesome show and really expansive. So here we go. Episode 219 with Leo Ryan. So Leo, I heard you ran a marathon with no like running or formal training for it. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit more about that story? <laughs> sure, it was uh, it was back in 2017, and I, I always wanted to run a marathon, but uh, I'll be honest, I've been quite busy, and I just never really put my mind to uh, dedicate myself to the training. And I, and I also, with my own background, I just felt that there was a lot of uh, deficiencies in the training programs for a marathon. So it kind of came to a head where one, I wanted to test my ideas on on breath training. And two, it came down to time as well. So I ended up running the uh, Dublin Marathon in 2017. I decided I hadn't ran in uh, seven years. Uh, no endurance training, no no bicycling, no swimming, no running at all. And I didn't do any running in the training program for the marathon either. So I uh, well, what I decided I would do is I would get tested. I would do some VO2 max testing uh, with a gentleman here in Ireland. And did that, and, and that kind of started to blow open the doors for me in terms of what was happening with breathing uh, and endurance sport, and um, what was happening in the respiratory system. And I began to understand more the relationship between uh, breathing and fatigue, really, is what it was about. Uh, so when I ran the first one, uh, at the start of the program, uh, I ran it, and what, what he found most interesting was my... Uh, fractional extraction of, of oxygen, uh, FeO2. He found that really interesting because it was up and over 7%, maybe even 7.5%. And he thought that was absolutely phenomenal. And I was like, uh, okay. Um, he says, how do you think you got on? I says, well, I, I have no data to go off. I'm like, you're, you are telling me everything here that I need to go. So what, what happened in the test was I decided uh, for the test, I wanted to test out the difference between all nasal breathing uh, which I call level one, nose-mouth breathing, which I call level two, and then mouth-mouth breathing, which I would refer to as level three, right? So as we went through the VO2 max test, I would give a thumbs up for the exact moment that I switched, uh, uh, when I switched ventilation um, 
hole, for want of a better word. So, and, and he would write down on the test and he was marking on the test where that happened on the test. So what we found interesting was the relationship between switching from uh, all nasal breathing to in through the nose and out through the mouth. And that that was within 10 seconds of the anaerobic threshold. And that for me was way more important. I was like, whoa, that kind of really opened up the doorway for me into how I was actually going to run this marathon. Because without having done any running, I had no idea how to pace myself and how I was going to last that, that type of distance. So I then embarked on a training program based around breath work and uh, looking after my joints. Like I did a lot of, of rehab style um, training for, for the joints to make sure that that system at least was okay and I wasn't going to do myself any long-term injury by uh, stepping on the pavement for, for 26.2 miles. <laughs> but the goods of the train was all based around the breathing. Uh, we did another test just before, and again, uh, that relationship stayed there, so really close between the AT and, and the switching of breathing vents. And that's when I made the decision that I would actually tape my mouth for the marathon as well. So I would only nasal breathe for the whole marathon. And the reason for that is, is if you think of it, if you, if you develop a, a large aerobic base or if you can continually pump oxygen into your cells for the duration of a marathon, well then, you know, where, where does fatigue kick in? Uh, it, it comes down to uh, neuromuscular fatigue as opposed to general fatigue from uh, carbon dioxide or from draining the, the lactate system as well. So that was my only gauge of what pace it could take. So yeah, I ended up running it with, uh, with all nasal breathing. <laughs> I wonder if you would have just kept going how long you could, you know, you're like, I'm saying, if you have the pace that you're at, mm -hmm. you're, you're always going to have oxygen in your cells. Then it comes mm -hmm. down to the joints, probably either your joints are going to break or a muscle is going to go, or like you said, neuromuscular fatigue. I, I'm kind of curious yeah. if you would just kept going. Either, either your brain will give up because of the actual pain of the, the, the localized pain in the muscles and your brain can play games with you. Like I brought in all the all the, the, the mind games that an athlete would bring in to help them to keep going. And it was funny because there was at one point in the race, I think it was about maybe mile 18 or 19 in. And uh, I, I actually, in my mind, I went, all these mind games are all a load of bullshit like they, they don't work at all this is a lot of rubbish and then oh, hold on they got me this far <laughs> maybe do i have any more in the bag that i continue to use and continue to play with but uh, yeah that it's an interesting question is is how far can you push the human body and this is where ultra endurance running is is fascinating to to me as well and that how far can people actually run once they get find their find their rhythm and find their pace and match their pace to the to the natural rhythms of the body yeah, no, it's it's really fascinating stuff. I think for me, my a lot of my exploration. Well, I was gonna say too, how many mental training techniques have probably been come up come up with by people who are running like marathons or in the middle of like ultra. You know, they're like, you got nothing, you got all that time to practice. So I'm sure when you're done, and a whole lot of pain as a motivation <laughs> to uh, find them, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say as well. I not to keep. I, I I just think it's funny how many other people probably had their mouths taped during that. I'm sure zero, right? Or <laughs> like, uh, no, like, but 2017 mouth taping was it wasn't really done. Like if you think of the the auction advantage is what is the method that's most associated with mouth taping in the world in the in the West, which yeah. actually is built on the Buteyko method. 
So, but, but athletes weren't looking at this stuff. Like I've been doing it for the last, whatever, 10, 15 years. I, I, I would play with mouth taping and sport and all the rest and, and experiment with that with both myself and my clients. But nobody was doing. Now you'll see a quite a you'll see a handful of people every marathon uh, taping their mouth. But oh, really, for me, it doesn't make sense. Like it, it was, I was doing it for a purpose, right? If I really wanted to perform in a marathon uh, and I wanted to hit a PB and I trained for it fully, I wouldn't mouth stay. Uh, because I would want to drop into an anaerobic state. I want to push my body so hard that it has to reuse lactate as a fuel source. You want to push to the very ends of your performance. Maybe not when you're halfway through, uh, but certainly towards the uh, the penultimate stage of the race, you would want to be really pushing that that, that barrier, right? Yeah, you'd like rip the tape off with like a couple miles to go or something, right? Exactly, exactly. It's like it's like you see in Formula One, they go in and they they change their tires with you know 20, 30 laps to go, and you go, okay, now now it's the business end of the season here, right? Yeah. That makes sense now with level. I know we'll get into all this stuff too, because I, I I was thinking about the level one, two, and three, and what you're talking about a little bit there when you first started. And I was like, okay, now now this makes sense to me, because I was just thinking, yeah, if I'm gonna run, if I'm gonna if I'm training for the 400 meters and I'm running some 300 repeats or something, I'm running like four 300s mm-hmm. really fast, and I ran them all with only nose breathing, then I'm not gonna get into those. It's not gonna let me into those lactate systems. Well, that'd be a rough one. <laughs> It is a rough one. (laughs) It is. And that's the interesting thing because when when I did that, uh, when I did those VO2 max tests, nobody, I I hadn't heard of anybody in the world at the time talking about this. I had begun speaking with uh, Brian McKenzie Mm -hmm. uh, from from, uh, Power Speed Endurance and now Shift Adapt. And uh, like he was toying with similar ideas at the the same time as I was. I kind of, we, we, we had spoken, he'd introduced me to the, 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 the Wim Hof element and, and, and the performance end of breathing where he, I believe, more started. And then I showed him more of the oxygen advantage and the buteco and the, the nose breathing end of things. And from there, then we both developed very, very similarly across the board, both with ourselves and with our own, uh, our own athletes and our own clients. But when I did that, when I ran that, uh, marathon hot wire. This is fascinating, but it's just me. Uh, and, and by the way, to finish that, uh, when when I got when I finished the marathon, just to show you its effects on fatigue, is is my wife was there at the end line, and she was like, "Wow, Leo, you you, you look really fresh. Like <laughs> you look so fresh. What's going on?" I says, "Do you know what? I, I feel really fresh. My muscles now from my from my ribs down are destroyed. Uh, yeah, like my running mechanics went to pot, so they did." But uh, but I felt really good overall in terms of energy-wise. And it was funny because I got down and I started, you know, already shoes off, socks off, started massaging my feet, started uh, wiggling around the big toes, started bringing some movement and variety of movement into my body. And within three days, I was fully recovered from the event. Wow. I was completely recovered where I went, okay, my, my main sport at the time was actually judo. And I was competing. I want. I had an eye, a second eye, on competing in the uh, All Irelands in the, in, the, in the Masters event, the Over Thirties event, which was the following week. And because the the marathon, I, I hadn't trained for it. I was training what I was doing, but I, I couldn't risk the injury. So on the Wednesday, I was feeling pretty fantastic. And I says, "Okay, I'm going to go in." And I, I did a full training session Thursday and felt absolutely amazing and competed the following Sunday, which is a week later. Wow. Uh, I ended up getting a bronze medal in the whole event, but 
again the the the, the effects of the one-off marathon and the, the the mileage of just 26 miles had no long-term effects on me that way it's amazing it makes you and really you think compare that to what people do generally for a marathon and you're going oh like your training could be improved so much better right yeah and as you were saying i was just thinking about the implications for just recovering from training in general because i mean i like i was i was I think i was alluding to like i'm like i'm more of a speed power athlete myself i know a lot of people listen to this podcast are but if you can use that breath work and recover from a marathon like that because that's one of many things that i'm interested in is just recover energy and recovery potential it also leads me to think well why do we get sore and and joints just you know everything gets destroyed like and, and everything going back or a big part of it going back to like you said energy in the cell and mm-hmm. like fatigue uh, and where does this all start you know that, that that's your number one aspect to it and, and i was so fascinated by it i, I took i had i was training a, a gated football as an amateur sport over here in ireland although it's it's a the athletes that train in it are, are they, they train pretty tough. They'd be, they'd be almost at a semi-pro level and they'd be, they'd be very dedicated. And, and I've been training this team for the previous, uh, must have been two, two years at that stage. So I said, okay, I, I went and I paid privately for all of the VO2 access and I, I attended them, took a cohort to attend them and sent them through the same protocol for the VO2 max test. And uh, all of them got similar results to me, which was... Uh, as they hit their anaerobic threshold within 10 to 15 seconds, they all change their breathing vent from all nasal to nose mouth. So for me, again, this sold, okay, this is big implications for um, energy management and your, and your energy systems training going forward. And, and at the time, there was little to no research on energy systems training and, and the way you breathe. Uh, back then, like now we know, for example, with uh, we, we know that mouth breathing, so pure mouth breathing, will burn more sugar than nasal breathing. So if you're using up more sugar in your system and uh, then, you're, then you're depleting stores of, of glucose, then you're going to, again, if, if, if you look at the inference across, in, in my mind, the theory then obviously goes that you start reusing lactate as well as an energy source quicker than if you're fat, especially in an endurance sport where you're fat adapted and where you're, um, where you're breathing efficiently. Yeah. That was one of the things that I was, yeah. Think about as you're talking and I think about just different contexts. Like if I'm, if I am training more of a like repeated sprintability, short sprintability, I think the easiest thing, well, actually, well, I'll ask this, but I do want to get to my next question. <laughs> Although I love how this is so conversational because you just, right off the bat, that marathon thing just sparked like, you know, 10 questions in me. So we just roll with it. But like, I think it's very easy just we can to... Go, we can go with the structure. We can go off course. This is your choice. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go with this one and eventually maybe I'll get to my next question. So, but I think it's very easy for any conditioning just to say, okay, tape the mouth, you know, nose only uh, and, and, and more aerobic and like you said mouth open Mm -hmm. less sugar burning but if it's more of like a a quick repeated burst like you'd want that sugar to to, as the fuel source right wouldn't you like to to be able to have more uh, for some of the power-based bursts or how does that work yeah there there is a playoff uh between the two obviously uh i would i would agree with that but 
from my own experience coaching, but also from, from speaking with uh, a couple of different doctors and sports medicine people and, and coaches as well, you, you are essentially, unless you're a pure power sport like a Olympic weightlifting, like a powerlifting type sport, um, you do want a decent aerobic base to you. Mm-hmm. So, and, and to, to, even though you, you want to be hitting more creatine phosphate earlier on anyway, so which is immediate, and I, and I don't have relationships between uh, creatine phosphate usage and breathing uh your breathing level but certainly in terms of uh you want to be as efficient for as long as you can now if your anatomy is built that you can get enough air through the system and dispel more so dispel enough carbon dioxide then why wouldn't you want to spare your glycogen uh resources until you absolutely need them for example in the last 10, 20, 30 meters of a sprint instead of through 150 meters of a 200 sprint, right? Yeah. Yeah, that makes like sense. Like if you yeah. can produce the same force because you've trained force through your uh, your physical training, your, your sprint training, well then why wouldn't you want to spare and be as efficient as possible and spare that glycogen for as long as you can? Yeah, no, yeah, that's that's uh, yeah, that helps me out. X fizz and you know cellular metabolism and all these en- and the energy systems. If I had to say like all these areas in my weakness, that's definitely my weakness. That's where my kind of like little bit of ADDness and um, extras yeah. cl- in you know, college courses comes out a little bit. But this is the way I learn it. Like if it's like applied and breathing, this all reminds uh, me a little bit too of um, I've did a podcast with Aaron Davis and Evan uh, Pikeon on the moxie monitor which measures um you put on your muscle and it measures blood oxygen as you're training and once you get to a certain level of saturation where there's not much oxygen left in the cell that's where training recovery gets prolonged and so that's where everything lights up for me i'm like oh wait like that like it just just in terms of day-to-day training and that's the aerobic base too people talk i think it's easy to say oh you know, we don't need to train the aerobic system. Well, if you don't, how are you going to recover? And and it's easy to get in the mm-hmm. bucket where it's you're going to have prolonged recovery periods too. If if you are a, like more of a regular, like like uh, um, more of like a more on the power side of things, not Olympic weight yeah, perhaps, but. Um, I'm I, I train uh, two judo Olympians uh, currently at the minute, and like, the benefits of the breath train is all about recovery. That that's where I said there is enhancements to performance. Uh, but for the majority, it has got to do with recovery, both recovery. If you're a a field sport athlete, so it's recovery in between sprints is phenomenal and phenomenally powerful through breathing system, through breathing methods. Uh, but then also post event recovery and preparation for the next day. It's, 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 it is the main, for me, it's the main recovery modality. Um, it's where it all starts. That's awesome. Maybe that's for that for that sprint athlete, their ability to use their nose uh, during an all out sprint will be determined, uh, in my opinion, through their anatomy. Do they have are there? Mm. So I grew up um, with, with, with chronic childhood asthma. And if you look at the research, the associations between uh, mouth breathing and jaw development and nose development and teeth structure is, is there's a lot of evidence behind that. And if you look at my structures, I've got very, uh, very narrow nose, very long nose, very 
um, very narrow jawline and, and pointed jawline. And it's difficult for me, actually, my, my nose, if you, if you were to look up them, they're very small. The nostrils are quite small. And so my ability to sprint, all-out sprint with nose-only breathing is much more difficult than, say, for example, a, a sprinter with a very strong jawline and huge big nostrils and, and, and broader uh, airways. Yeah, they're basically, they're probably getting in one nostril, what you're getting into when you're doing <laughs> exactly, that. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah, so all this, I mean, you've, you've kind of answered it on some level, but my next formal question was, I mean, breathing, it's, it's really important, obviously, but why, why is it so underappreciated? I think we're starting to get to it a little bit more, but why do you mm. think it's, why do you think this is something that we don't really, it isn't in like every training method? Like, why, why do you think it's kind of underappreciated? Yeah, even, I, I know you said it's important, but I suppose for, for people, uh, what I like to do is, because I've now looked at it from, the, from that broader uh, scope, where I'm going, well, why is it important? Well, it, it's important not only for recovery, but if you think of where your breathing system lies, and I say breathing system because it's more than just respiratory. You're talking about the, the neuromuscular aspect of it. You're talking about, yes, you're talking about the lungs itself, and then you're talking about what the what breathing can do for uh, strength and, and the the tension on the kinetic chain as well. So it has uh, a primary role both in terms of uh, mechanics and movement mechanics, and also then in terms of your physiology. So how you get oxygen to the cell. Uh, for example, you spoke about that. Uh, that uh, equipment there that they use in terms of looking at blood oxygen level, but Blood oxygen isn't you. You don't necessarily want oxygen just in the blood. You want oxygen in the cell. Now, to get oxygen into the cell is a different. It's a bigger story than just oxygen. We might go into that in a little bit. But uh, so you've got a role to play in terms of getting oxygen into the cell. But then you also have roles to play in terms of your ability to put attention and and keep your uh, concentration. So there are um, psychological aspects to breathing as well. And it's just because of its position in terms of anatomy and in terms of how we're built as human beings. That's, that's why it's so important. Yeah, it's, why is it overlooked? Oh, man. <laughs> when you put that question, I thought, how do I, how do I even think of this? Um, I don't know. My, my own thoughts is it, it's, it's cultural and in that most breathing techniques have come from the East with an Eastern philosophy, uh, more qualitative. Yes. It's yeah. more, yes. it's more difficult to quantify uh, the breath. In fact, there's no definition of what a good breath is. There are <laughs> a lot of, um, let's say correlates. There, there are a lot of things that indicate a high quality breath, but, Nobody has said, uh, nobody's been able to turn around and say, this is a good breath and this is a good breath in, the, uh, in, in sport, right? But we are getting to that stage now as researchers are beginning to integrate. So you have the psychologists coming together with the neurophysiologists, coming together with the uh, biomechanics, uh, and, they're, and they're beginning to look at breathing from a multidimensional uh, perspective. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to share with you a little bit about what our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, now has available in their store. You hear me mention in the outro of the show all the time about the free lap timing system in the K-Box, which I have and use regularly. 
But today I wanted to share a little bit more about the bar speed monitoring units that Simply Faster has, which is the Gymware and the new portable flex unit. So let me start with the Gymware. I mention it regularly on the show. It's been referred to as the Cadillac of bar speed monitors. Carl Valley calls it a lab inside a lunchbox, as the readings you get out of the Gymware go well beyond typical concentric or just up the up phase of the lift velocities. Rather, you can measure the entire shape of the barbell lift in terms of eccentric velocity, range of motion, and total work done. Total work being awesome, by the way, especially like comparing a long-armed bench presser or a 610 squatter versus a 511 point guard. So you're getting all these extra metrics that you're not getting on other units. It's perfect for teams wanting to manage the weight room and the data synchronizes to software platforms such as CoachMe Plus, Team Builder, and Athlete Monitoring. So new to the store is the Flex, which is the ultra portable and lower price travel version of the coach's favorite gym wear. So just like the gym wear, the Flex measures the shape of each rep, range of motion, total work done, eccentric dynamics, so for this and the gym aware, this is the advantage that a force plate would have over just knowing how high you jumped. You're getting many other metrics and information that go into this unit of work. Compared to similar portable bar speed monitors, this unit gets the entire rep rather than a fraction. So you have here two awesome tools. And if you're interested in upping your game in the velocity-based training and bar speed world, I would definitely recommend heading to the store at simplyfaster.com and checking into these two units. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, that that's I when you said the that's more subtle, I was like, yep, that's it. Because I think in strength and conditioning, particularly athletic performance, it's so um, it's so quantitative. You know, like give me a number behind this. Like, and I'm sure yeah. you can get numbers. It's just not, and it's I think it's with your recovery too. It's almost more of a subtle effect. Like, how do you gauge? Like, if I'm training and I did a set of like you know a depth jump workout a plyometric workout and my vertical went up oh wow i can definitely see that that was well i imagine with breathing you can start noting improved recovery but it, i imagine it's a, potentially outside of the the like you said the vast potential in endurance sports where you're going to notice it like marathons and endurance perhaps the recovery element may be more subtle or the mental effects may be slightly more subtle for many people would you say or or just can it be a big dramatic thing they, they are, and you have to be in tune with what's going on. But for me, breathing is more sensitive than HRV as a measurement on general stress. Ah. Uh, and that, that's what I found in my practice. I used to use HRV a lot uh, with, with clients. Um, I only use HRV now with people who are not tuned into the breath. And so people who aren't aware of what a, uh, the characteristics of a quality breath and the efficiency of it. There are now some... Uh, methods that uh, quantify the, physio- the, the, the the physiological aspects of breathing. So, for example, it, it's called CO2 tolerance. Um, so that, that they look at measuring the, the CO2 tolerance level of your system. And that started originally with, with Buteyko back in the 1950s. He was the first one to quantify uh, the breath and show what a, what a quality breath um, should have from a physiological perspective. And that's why I love that method. It's, it's how I started, but um, that's why it has so much power to it. Is It's different than um, most other breathing techniques that came from yoga or meditation or Qigong or Buddhism. Yeah, and so, so you're talking about the those qualitative elements of breathing and versus HRV. So how do you, how do you assess the breath like in that manner? I, I, cause I think HRV is pretty popular in those assessment and readiness meters. And it also, this all makes me think too, just, 
I think about when I, every time I go into coach, I, I do think about how is this an art form? Like how is this something that I can say after three years of work, I have definitively become 10 times better than I was when I first started. And I think with a piece of, I mean, technology is great, but you know, if I'm just relying on a number, a machine to tell me a number every single time, I feel mm-hmm. like there's not, I can't say that I grew as much as a practitioner by just relying versus those you have to pick up on all those little subtleties the same way an athlete has to pick up on, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of different little pieces of information. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I think that's interesting. That's why I wanted to ask you too. Um, how do you, what, how, what are you assessing there? Okay. So originally I would have used the, uh, to method, which is what the auction advantage is built on. So Dr. Buteyko was a, was a Russian doctor and he, through his own, he, he actually was diagnosed with a, with a, uh, at the time, it was a fatal diagnosis of high blood pressure and heart disease. So he was given, I think, about six months to live. And medication couldn't save him. They didn't have anything for him back in the day. And he, the, the, the story goes was that he, he was also observing, by the way, in his practice, uh, he was observing people who were on their deathbeds, and he noticed that the closer they got to dying, the bigger their breathing got, and the more distorted their breathing became. So he played with the idea of reducing the breath and of uh, breath holding. And within an instant, he noticed a difference to how he felt, uh, to pains in his in his kidneys and in his body, and to headaches that they all started to disappear. And he thought this is fascinating. So he embarked on a ten year journey of discovery. Uh, primarily around the Bohr effect and how carbon dioxide has a huge role to play in getting oxygen into the cells, from the bloodstream into the cells. And then he went on in Russia to uh, promote the method, uh, to teach people in the method, and he was known to have cured many, many diseases. Now, when I say cure, I know people shy away from that word. Cure simply means, if you look it up in the dictionary, to get rid of all symptoms. That's all. So that, that's the only context I'm using that word in, okay? Just in case we get ourselves in trouble here. <laughs> so when, when you look at it, he, he developed a whole measurement scale to his method, which he said related carbon dioxide tolerance uh, across to your health status uh, in terms of uh, dysfunctional breathing and uh, related disease effects, depending on your genetics. And as you improved uh, your CO2 tolerance, as you built that up and built that up and built that up, well, then your uh, symptoms of disease decreased and decreased and decreased and decreased and decreased until they became absolutely nothing. And you didn't have any symptoms at all. And this is associated with uh, Dacosta syndrome and over pretty much every inflammatory disease or lifestyle disease, but you're looking at over 150 uh, different diseases, what they looked at. Now, I'll qualify this in saying that since uh, Dr. Bottega passed away, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, there has been some, he did have, by the way, he had some clinical trials which showed a great effectiveness on asthma. In particular, that's the one that they went after because it's a respiratory disease. But uh, his theory has been unproven since. That CO2 tolerance itself is responsible. But they actually now, modern research is looking at CO2 sensitivity which is your chemoreceptor response of carbon dioxide and um, or how quickly your brain picks up CO2 in your system. Uh, that, that does have a powerful influence on 
uh, both the resilience of your respiratory system and then because of its importance in your respiratory system, then how that relates across to other diseases. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that was, that was the, the measurement scale that I used a lot was his control pause scale. Okay. And as you, so you, you take it, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's a normal breath in and out of the nose. And after your exhale, you pinch and hold the nose and you release at your first urges to breathe. Nice, we're doing it there. Yeah, so I, I, I learned by doing so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's okay. Your first sensation to breathe, you release. And you, you, you time that breath hold is what you do. People know it now more as the bolt score and the oxygen advantage. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. So as you get used to taking that bolt and as you improve that bolt score and improve it and improve it, you just get in touch with the subtleties of pain in the body, of fatigue in the body, because of the role of your respiratory system in all of these things. And because you're taking it every morning, you're able to check in internally with your system uh, every single morning and, and know, it's, know how it's feeling, know how it's getting on. So it's a great gateway into how are you feeling and what is your resiliency level like. Uh, and then from there, like it becomes very simple to qualitatively check in and see what it's like. And, and for me, HRV just was less sensitive to it. That's all. I'm not knocking HRV in any sense. I think that it, it's helped a lot of my clients who are completely unaware. It gives them a, 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 a measurement to grab a hold of. And as a coach, if I have a team, it's very handy because I can just check in with those numbers across the board. Well, for somebody who is in touch with their body uh, and, and, and what shape they're in and, and how they're feeling, then the breathing is far more sensitive. Interesting. I love it that the body's always going to tell you. I, I was going to ask too, because I do, occasionally I do Wim Hof breathing in the mornings. Um, I just kind of, I like the mental state and, and I always, I, I like challenges too, because you, you hold your breath at the end, you take 30 big breaths and then you hold for how long you can go. And I always like just kind of seeing where I'm at too. So in reality, on some level, I'm sure they're not, they're clearly not the same, but that, can you tell me again, what, so what, how long you can hold your breath? Cause I've seen this in just general health assessments too. hold your breath right now. How long can you go? And if it's like yeah. 20 seconds, you're not, you're, yeah, yeah, so yeah. What, could you just in a nutshell, what does that say? If you cannot hold your breath for very long, just whatever state, what does that say about you physiologically okay. that relates to HRV? Okay, so let, let's talk about where we're going to have to dive into cellular metabolism a little bit. Okay? That's okay. I'll bring, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm good. I'll, <laughs> okay, cells produce ATP, right? We know that. The way it, a healthy cell produces ATP is you have enough oxygen getting into the cell and enough nutrients coming from your food and your digestive system. Okay, what comes out with ATP in an aerobic energy, in an aerobic uh, working system is carbon dioxide, heat, lactate, and hydrogen ion. That's what comes out with ATP, okay? Now, when that, what, what the main, according to the Bohr effect, which was in 1904, discovered in 1904, what the Bohr effect essentially says is it's the level of carbon dioxide which determines how much, how quickly oxygen gets into your cell, okay? 
So if you're very sensitive to carbon dioxide, in other words, if as soon as your brain senses CO2 in your system, a rise in CO2 in your system, well, then you'll begin to hyperventilate and blow it off if you're very sensitive. So if you are less sensitive or have a higher CO2 tolerance to it, if you build it up, build it up, it looks like your brain doesn't freak out at the first sign of it. Well, then you will be able to get more oxygen into your cell. Your cells will function better. Okay. So a better functioning cell means better uh, regulation of your energy throughout the body, right? More ATP, more better aerobic system, everything working better. The other side of the coin is as well, CO2 is one of the few things that passes the blood-brain barrier. In fact, it's the only gas that passes the blood-brain barrier. So the reason you breathe is nothing to do with oxygen at sea level. Okay, in a healthy person, the reason you breathe is first of all to exhale carbon dioxide, to get rid of um, a buildup of metabolic waste. Okay. But if you're highly sensitive to it because you've patterned in a, a mouth breathing or a big breathing pattern over many years, so if you're very sensitive to it, then that brain gets very sensitive to CO2, which means it automatically elicits a fight or flight response. So we'll start to pump adrenaline through the body. And that adrenaline doesn't get used. It can send you into uh, anxiety and panic attacks. So, for example, Dr. Feldman over there in the States has done a lot of research into uh, carbon dioxide as a, a metabolic stress molecule, um, which means that, uh, for example, one, one, one piece of research was he, there's a very rare disease, and this was um, said recently in James Nestor's book, Breath. There's a very rare disease uh, which the amygdala in the brain don't develop, which is uh, uh, where we get our fear response from, is what psychiatry thinks. So this one particular lady, they, they tried for years and years, I think they got to 10 years to elicit a fear response in her, and they couldn't elicit any fear response in her whatsoever. So Dr. Feldman took her into her labs and, and said, okay, we're gonna administer you now a bolus dose of carbon dioxide, and, um, you know, you might get panicky, but, you know, just stay calm, stay relaxed and, and see how you get on. She puts that mask on her one breath, 30% carbon dioxide, and she flips out, rips wow. the mask off her, pure hyperventilation. <gasps> no, 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 get out. She wouldn't even finish the rest of the test. Wow. Yeah. So we now know that there is a huge role for CO2 to play in anxiety, performance anxiety, and uh, I'm panic and fear. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that it's really amazing. Uh, I mean, it's, if you look at like the totem pole, I think I remember like Paul checks totem pole and it's like the, mm. that all the way up at the top. It's, it's, it's such a critical function. So it just makes perfect sense that this is, it's, yeah. it goes so far beyond recovery, but just goes so far beyond recovery too. And I think that's why it's so important. I, Leo, I need to ask you before I get, because I'm just going to keep having follow-ups because this will just be my, um, but so what you mentioned, I know you mentioned you had had asthma earlier. Is that what got mm -hmm. you into breath training? I was just curious what got you into this and what led you into all this? Yeah, I was, I was blessed to have asthma uh, is how I would put it nowadays. Uh, I had really bad asthma when I was a kid. Um, 
like to the point of where I would have uh, GPs come in to my house in the middle of the night to administer extra medication to me uh, because I couldn't breathe and my system was shutting down. I was hospitalized on several occasions. And, and when I was good, I was good. You know, I, I, I love sport. I played a lot of Gaelic games, did every sport under the sun as a, as a, as a young guy. Uh, but this, this asthma just kept on coming back and biting me in the butt, so to speak. Um, where, where would it was also as I was nearing, like I, I had ideas and dreams to play inter county football, which would be the elite level of Gaelic games. Uh, but as I was approaching a critical age, kind of end of teenage years, this was just getting worse and worse and worse. So I would be, I spent when I was about the age of 19, I spent a total of six months uh, in bed with because of asthma attacks and respiratory infections um, following on from the asthma attacks. I had over 14 courses of antibiotics and over 400 steroid tablets, three inhalers three times a day and a, a further tablet to manage my asthma symptoms. And doctors gave me no hope. Literally my GP said, look, I'll get you an appointment with the, one of the top consultants, respiratory consultants in Ireland, but uh, that's going to take a while because that's how our healthcare system works. But uh, in the meantime, you know, there's not much we can do. And I said, but look, I, I really want to be a, a, a trainer. Uh, that's what I'd, I'd like to go into. And uh, he, genuinely, he laughed at me. And he says, look, if we wrap you up in, in bubble wrap and put you away to their 25, we, we don't know if you're going to get better. We, we have no idea. We're doing everything we can, but there's no solution here. After that, I, I left his office and life kind of went on for normal until um, my, my mom rang me and she said, look, there's, there's this guy, this Irish guy, he went over to Russia and learned the Buteco method. His name is Patrick McKeown. Uh, he, he's here and he's begun teaching workshops. Do you, do you want to get on a workshop? I says, yeah, I'd love to. She says, well, there's one next week. I says, great, let's go. And uh, so I was brought over. Did, did I was in one of his first cohort of uh, workshops. This must have been back in about 2003. I think he started teaching late 2002. And uh, so I went in, learned the Buteco method, learned the physiology of how it works and got to work training it three times a day, every day. Um, by the time I had seen the respiratory consultant a year later, I was completely symptom free. Uh, I had reduced all of my uh, respiratory uh, infections. Uh, the gap between them kept on growing larger and larger and larger, and all my asthma symptoms were disappearing. And uh, he gave me the all clear to come off my medication. And it was so it was about 18 months of training where I became symptom and medication free. And kind of then from there, I did what I said I'd do. I went in. I went in to uh, become a trainer, uh, focusing on personal training. Athletics and sport isn't that big in Ireland. We don't have that many uh, full-time athletes. We're not uh, as lucky as, as you guys over in the states. So, I went into the general fitness area and started working with a lot of people. With you know, initially it was weight loss uh, in particular, uh, but everybody seemed to have a chronic disease behind them. And I noticed that the, the power of movement and the power of nutrition on them. And all the while I was thinking, geez, I'm missing something here. I'm missing something here. And it was about, at this stage now, it must have been about seven, eight years ago, I turned around and I know I got to go back and study the breathing techniques and bring these to, to my people to, to, to help them. And that's when I went on the journey of when, when I was back doing my uh, you take your qualifications. That's when I heard of the Wim Hof method. And I was like, whoa, 
whoa, what's this stuff? Because Wim Hof is like, he's big breathing. He's like, just breathe, motherfucker. He's like, just, just, just do it any way you can. Just follow the method. And, and Buteyko is, no, no, no. It's all nose breathing. It's calm breathing. It's relaxed breathing. It's breath holding. And once I had my eyes open to that, I was going, well, what on earth else is out there? You know, what, what are other people teaching? What's, what's yoga breathing? What's, uh, I found some Russian martial arts breathing, Japanese martial arts breathing. Uh, what is the biomechanics of breathing? I, I just started to peel back every single technique and method I could. I've kind of looked at over 100 techniques now uh, from many, many different methods and backgrounds. And what, what I've been doing for the last good to five years, every, in fact, more particularly since the marathon, especially since then, as I've looked at, tried to find as much research as I possibly can from whatever area, whether it's psychiatry or physiology or, or biomechanics, and, and find out what on earth is going on with breathing and, and how it affects people. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah. Yeah, that was something I was really looking forward to talking with you about because I think it's very easy just to say, okay, just just breathe this way, like like just belly breathe or just tape your mouth shut or just and not that those are bad. I mean, it's it's certainly a huge huge you know step in there. Even the simplest means can usually be extremely effective. But I hear all these different things on how to breathe. At first, my first learning was just oh, just breathe through your belly because you know it won't stress you out. And then it's like oh well your belly and your should rise this much and your chest should rise this much. And, you know, it's just, it's like, well, what? And then you think about Wim Hof too. And I think about this in coaching athletics is <laughs> like, yeah. you can't, at some point you can't overcoach a person through something they should do naturally. At the end of the day, like if I'm coaching, yeah. All right, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, but what if the, what if their system shut down? What if they can't get access to those muscles that are supposed to do the work? Like you can you can shout at somebody all you like belly breathe belly breathe belly breathe you can put blocks and kettlebells and hands on and give them all the kinesthetic awareness that you want but what if they just can't do it because their diaphragm is that retracted because of perhaps it was because of an injury perhaps it was because of an emo- a long term emotional stress perhaps it's because they've been eating food that their body doesn't like and so the di- the, the, the 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 diaphragm just shut down and can't work as well so this is where you got to look at at the breathing system as a whole and go okay well there's mechanical aspects that we have to restore and i'm thinking of it like any other rehab program you you, you've got to be able to innervate those muscles and and allow enable them to do their work for them to do their work then for me you get down to the business of training your breath and Honestly, I don't know anybody else who uses that term as breath training. I, I kind of, in, in my own mind, I came up with it because I'm, I'm a trainer and I've been training SNC work for so long that that's how I think of developing the human body is every, everything is training. And um, which means that it's not, oh, I did this one technique and I got some results. So, yay, happy days for me. Because, yes, that worked for you. What else are you leaving on the table, though? You know, and then there's the other people who try a breathing technique and it doesn't work for them. And they're like, well, breathing doesn't work for me at all. Like, I'm not going near that stuff. That's a load of rubbish. So I kind of look at a periodized system of breath training and, and how that fits in with um, the conditioning of an athlete as well um, for a given purpose. 
So you have to restore the mechanics like any other movement um, uh, movement practice that you want. You got to you got to have sound biomechanics. Then you have to train the physio- the physiological component, which what we're talking about earlier on is improve your tolerance to carbon dioxide. And then you have to be able to use the breathing for a particular purpose, whether that's for um, generating power, strength and power through the kinetic chain, or whether that's for efficiency in a marathon. And you have to choose what works for you in that moment and train that so that that then becomes um, your default pattern and subconscious pattern that you don't even. Yeah, that that fits really well. I like to bring things back to training someone in a sport movement because I think a lot of people listening to this really resonate with that. And uh, a saying I like, it's really could be two things. It's strength or structure dictates the function. Like I can't coach Mm -hmm. an athlete into a particular position that is quote unquote biomechanically correct if they don't have the structure, the structural links, the strength to get them there fluidly and naturally and organically. Otherwise, I'm just manufacturing something. And so I'm I'm glad you brought that up with the breathing because I think it's very easy just to say you know, breathe this way. So could you actually get in detail then? Like what, like, and if an athlete, what are some, some limitations, some structural limitations that's going to keep, uh, and you met, you didn't mention them, but how would you kind of approach these things? If these structural limitations that an athlete might have, that it's just going to keep them from having a good breath in general before we even get to the technique. Cause a lot of times I think with, <laughs> I think with coaching athletes, I, I, I mean, that's, I think one of the beauty of, beautiful things of being a a physical prep coach if you will and sometimes there is a skill divide in terms of what you can get to on a skill but you can set the groundwork for these things that can become lots of things so what what's the groundwork um what should people have in place to be able to get these proper breaths in okay so you should be able, unless unless you've got a broken nose and deviated septum, you should be able to, and it deviated so badly that you can't physically breathe through your nose even for a minute, right? Well, then you should have patterned in uh, nose breathing at rest, okay? So your nose to inhale and to exhale at rest. Uh, that should be your daily breathing pattern. If that's not happening, well, then you are, uh, you will have a higher uh, sympathetic drive uh, and you will have, a, a, and again, that will have the knock-on effects of having higher sympathetic tone versus being able to have a high parasympathetic tone, right? Does that make sense? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. If you're mouth- <laughs> yeah. Sorry, yeah, I'm sorry. If so, you're mouth breathing all day, I'm sure that's not going to be very good for the parasympathetic tone at all. I, this like the carbon exactly. dioxide experiment, I'm sure. Yeah, go breathe through your mouth for the next hour and then tell me what you feel like after an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I mean, one of the greatest books written, in my opinion, on breathing is the, the most latest was the book by James Nestor, Breath, because here is a journalist not a breathing, he's a writer, so he writes beautifully and he explains the story beautifully. And he goes into the anatomy, he goes into the biomechanics, he goes into um, the impacts of CO2. He did an experiment for the book uh, where he himself and his uh, training buddy blocked up, they went to Stanford and blocked up their nose for 10 days so that they couldn't physically breathe through their nose. Now, this was an experiment done by uh, Dr. Harbaugh back in the 70s on monkeys but as far as I know, it was never done on humans. So they blocked up their nose. And within one day, his, uh, 
his prevalence of snoring increased by over 300%. Wow. Within one day. Uh, by the end of the 10 days, he was developing sleep apnea, uh, which again has huge consequences for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, even some cancers as well, right? It's huge. So just to go back to what you asked me was, I, I like to, I, I want athletes to be able to pattern in all nasal breathing at rest during the day and the night. Then what biomechanically, how should the breath look? It should, yes, the belly should rise, followed by the chest. Then your exhale should let go. So if you listen to what I do here. So that was a breath that was in through my nose and out of my mouth. As I inhaled through the nose, my belly rose, then my chest rose. As I exhaled, it was just recoiled. It just <sighs> fell out of my mouth with an open jaw. And you will be amazed at the amount of athletes who can't do that. Amazed. And for me, if you're unable to do that, well, then you have work to do on your biomechanics of breathing. What? And that's the first thing. What, um, so what are some things that happen instead? Uh, by the way, I really like when you say recoil, I like that because my I'm always about elasticity, right? Like, I like that, yeah, recoil. And, and the exhale is the elastic component of the breath, yeah, it's the load and unload. <laughs> always mm-hmm. gonna have that. Uh, so, what are some so breathing in the first bit through the belly, last, then the chest comes in, then it recoils. Mm-hmm. What are some things that are happening? Instead, I mean, I'm assuming probably just all chest breathing being one, but uh, what are some some um, dysfunctional patterns no, that you see? And I'd suggest any of your listeners lie on the floor on your back, bend your knees, and and try video yourself doing it because. Here's the funniest thing is most people don't, they think their belly is rising or their chest is rising and it's not. And when you look at it on a video, you'd be like, oh, 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 that's, that's not moving. Why isn't that moving? Well, <laughs> and that's genuinely what happens. Some people are reverse breathers, which means they only chest breathe, no lower rib, lower rib movement at all. Um, no diaphragm excursion at all. Other people can actually breathe into the lower aspects of the ribs um, and into the belly, but they can't move their upper chest. They're kind of mid to upper chest at all. Um, And then some people hold their breath at the top. And then they also control their breath on the way out. I think I do that. As a default breathing pattern. So they're the type of stuff that I look for is, is, okay, when they're inhaling, does the belly, I mean, the belly is a representation. It's not, you're not pushing the belly. Well, what, what I mean by that is do the, do the lower ribs move and does the belly move? Does it either move upwards or does it move out to the side? Can you access that diaphragm? The so, second part that, yeah, go on ahead. I was saying, so teaching only belly breathing, I mean, it, it, that would be good for someone who couldn't move their belly maybe, but beyond that, it, it like. It, it, is a, it is a weak technique, in my opinion. Uh, it can work, but it can take an awful lot of time to ingrain a diaphragmatic breath by just saying belly breathe or pacing blocks on their, their stomach. Okay, cool. Um, I used to use kinesthetic awareness with the fingers and the hands. I use a couple of different diaphragm release techniques, which are far more potent that they can change someone's breathing within a session. Um, they're just pretty good. I, I just 
went to experts in their fields and found out what they do and found they work pretty well. But then I have people who you free up the diaphragm and that's working fine, but they can't get full access to the chest muscles, to the, to the um, intercostal muscles, and they can't inflate the chest at all. So their, their, their upper chest is, I know you can see this, but the, in around your logo, if you think on your chest, that they can't access that area of their breath at all. And so the breath becomes stuck. And if you think of it from a from a uh, athlete's perspective, if you can't fill your lungs with air, well, then you are leaving change in the table when it comes to training your energy systems, um, because you're not taking a, a a full vacuum in of, of air, right? So you're 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 gonna fatigue early, or it's gonna take you longer to warm up, which is the other side of the coin. So speaking of warmups, when someone comes in for a training session, I'm sure it's completely, you know, there's a lot of individual factors, but how long do you spend at the front end of a training session or the back end? I mean, I think that's the common time. It's just, all right, we're going to do some breathing to warm up or to cool down or to get parasympathetic. Um, what does the, the, a training session of yours look like? Like, like how does that integrate in and how are you working that within the session? Like just for, let's just say a gym well, session. For, like, yeah, yeah, no problem. For, for me initially, um, I, there's, there's not much fun. I will allow people to do their physical training. Um, either, either as I, like if they come into me, usually they've been in their sport for years. Right. And they're coming to me because, uh, either they, they, they like my style of training. They really want to develop that way with me or specifically for, for breath, breath work they want to do. So my, my first goal is to get them to restore mechanics. So I don't, I don't pick a technique. I'm not like, oh, do this technique and that will drop you into a sympathetic state. Like do, for example, we'll use, say use the Wim Hof method and that will get you all, that'll get your adrenaline flowing and get you all amped up and ready for your session. I don't do that uh, because I think that for me, that's a hack. It's you, you are relying on, you're, you're manipulating the breath to make you feel better to produce a performance but the 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 other side of that coin is as well what it would, if your breathing is your weakness then why would you want to bypass it why would you want to cheese it by, by utilizing a specific technique so for me i want to rehab the breath i want to restore it that's my first goal um, and once so but once once i have their system trained, then I'm not, you, you ask, well, what, what does it incorporate? So for respiratory warm-up, in the general warm-up phase of, of movement or skills training, I will have, I will bring in breath holding into the general warm-up phase. I'll bring in between four and six very strong breath holds. So for me, I like it through the nose and I like holding the nose during the breath hold because uh, has a lot of benefits in terms of what happens up in the nose for, for your system as well. So they will breathe in, they will breathe out of the nose, a pinch and hold their nose, and then they, they might move with that to, to generate a higher uh, uh, metabolic load. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's in the general warm-up phase. Then they'll go off and they'll do all their power training, they'll do all their skills training uh, or warm-up phase. And then to finish their warm-up, uh, if it was pre-competition, I would get them to hyperventilate. I call it supraventilation, so breathe more than normally because it doesn't have a negative connotation to it. Uh, I yes. get them to do between, it depends on the person, but between five and maybe 
10, 15 breaths to dump CO2 out of their system. So now they're more fresh and ready to go uh, from the first whistle or, or does that make sense? Yeah, that's, and that's something I actually had wanted some clarification on because I think that, mm-hmm. I, I mean, this could be a whole talk in and of itself, but I, I do realize the need that like we talk about mental clarity and the, the slightly mm-hmm. parasympathetic need for mental clarity. But what if your job is just, you, you have to amp your body up too. Like you have to have some adrenaline going to compete. Like mm-hmm. you can't just avoid yourself of those things. And I think it's maybe slightly different for a team sport with more openness to it, where there's more things going on versus a sport where you're just tunneling. Like I worked with a swimmer who set an American record um, doing uh, a Wim Hof style breathing before his races because he's like, yes, you know, oxygen. Um, This is this is and it's it's not like you have lots of things to be aware of. You are tunneled in on one feet uh, to do basically well swimming you got to turn and you know kick and then on top but <laughs> you know what i'm saying so that's a question i'd always and i i love by the way how you said breathe more than normal versus i was actually thinking in my own mind okay what can i call this for you know because if you say hyperventilate mm-hmm. it's like what are you what am i doing i'm this is bad yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you don't want to have Hi- so sorry. hyperventilation just means more than more than your metabolic needs but it has a negative connotation because of the because of um it comes from out of the medical industry um but it comes from mainstream in, in that it's related to uh, disease and dysfunction right whereas this is i think supra maximal loading that's where i got the idea right supra maximal loading more than 100 percent of, of, of your lift so that's exactly what i'm doing i don't care whether it's faster or just bigger so whether it's or whether it's it depends on the person. People will prefer a different style. So I'll get them to super maximally ventilate. Yeah, I, I was thinking yeah. too. So you mentioned adrenaline because I, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to, I always want to be able to take this back to what we're talking about now, nuts and bolts in the yeah. session. My mind tends to just go and I want to make sure I, I, I bring it back. But you had mentioned adrenaline. I, Christian Thibodeau, a Canadian strength coach, has been on the show a few times. And in a recent episode, he was talking about um, how if we have too much adrenaline in our system, it's going to take that's going to prolong our recovery times uh from the work mm-hmm. so i was just thinking to myself okay well we want mm-hmm. there's this balance right like if it's an important competition and it's mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a really fast it's a 400 or it's a and, and i do have the tunnel or even maybe a big lift mm-hmm. I mean, i'd imagine there's probably some of that before a big even a power you know not, not even necessarily endurance there's probably is adrenaline and various things perhaps i'm not 100 percent sure you know i don't mm-hmm. necessarily see like olympic lifters doing that before or uh, it's a lot of there's uh, there's always a calm state for sure so there's probably a trade-off between what's happening aerobically and then the mind and uh, what, what do you think about that one of one of the pathways to secreting adrenaline is by breathing so when you supraventilate breathe more than your metabolic demand so you blow off carbon dioxide okay when you blow off carbon dioxide Carbon dioxide crosses the blood-brain barrier, and your brain registers that you're now breathing more than at rest. And your brain automatically goes, "Uh-oh, this is fight or flight, baby. This is this is the first, this is the this is the pathway that leads to fight or flight." So it's like, "Bing, bing, 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 bing." We get to get prepped, so it automatically starts to generate adrenaline um, up there in the hypothalamus. Now. There is a difference between adrenaline being, in my opinion, and this is just practice. I, I'm not, I'm not a scientist. 
Um, so I don't like necessarily talking about the inner workings of the body because I'm not an expert in that, right? But in, in my mind, there's a difference between a, a conscious uh, effort and a unregulated subconscious effort. For example, uh, okay, let's just say a default breathing a pattern of mine is to um, breathe heavy when I get stressed, okay? If I breathe heavy before I go out for competition, uh, that is a, a conscious control of breath. I'm doing it on purpose. So uh, it's almost like I'm, I'm, I have guide rails on my nervous system and on what I want to achieve. Versus I drink a can of Monster yeah, and all those, all those, uh, all, all my, all my inner working starts going crazy, and I can't contain the um, the hormones. I can't contain the effects that are happening on my body because it's it's just um, it, it's it's subconsciously regulated. Does that kind of make sense? The way I think about it is I, I always just think about this, like the human body is a miracle and in its natural state, how much extra conscious forebrain manufactured stuff should we really be put at the end of the day? None, right? Like you shouldn't have to do, Yes. maybe this is more philosophical, but I don't think it's like, I don't think LeBron James or Mike, I did basketballs were my, you know, Michael Jordan. I don't think they were doing all this extra conscious stuff. You know, I mean, I know mm -hmm. they're mentally, I mean, sure, mentally, like the mental mindset and mastery and those things. But physiologically, I doubt, you know, the the body in its own state as uh, elite athletes oftentimes, I think, are doing things that they're not even conscious of. It's just Correct. who like, they like are. Michael sticking out his tongue, right? Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. I need to do a podcast um, on that. And a lot of his mind... <laughs> Uh, games that he developed well, probably came out of just competition and, and out of life, you know. There's nothing better than, than having life as a teacher, right? Yes. Uh, whereas we're, what we're trying to do is pick apart those processes and, uh, and, and people's skills that they can use, that, that their life isn't presenting them with the circumstances to develop them themselves. Like for me, I don't think, I don't think cavemen needed to do breath training. <laughs> I think because... Their environment was was in line with the human uh, system. In, in other words, their their food was organic, grass fed. Their their air was clean and unfiltered because there was no industry. Uh, they they got plenty of movement in through the day. They slept like a log at night. They went out with the with the with the sunlight went down. So their their, their need for um, kind of restoring and rehabilitating their body is minimal. Uh, so the benefits where it comes into, I suppose, is just to get that extra out of performance. But the problem for us nowadays is that most of us are coming from a dysfunctional place in some part of our body, and we're either trying to hack that system with specialized techniques, uh, or we need to put the time into training them. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree. We're oftentimes reaching for the top of the pyramid when that bottom is mess is shaky and there's a lot of bricks missing because of our modern yeah lifestyles and just everything that kind of goes into us now versus being a caveman, like you said. Uh, so you started session with like you mentioned like the the no the nose breathing breath hold. 
Uh, and then mm-hmm. that's for the purpose of uh, like a, a, a diagnostic. And then also, uh, so what is that giving to the session as well? The, just that element, if it's just a typical gym session, you know, strength, typical qualities you'd get in the gym. Oh, so you're asking how would I train people in the gym? Is it? Well, what, what, uh, what, what is the question? Oh, just clarifying out outside of being a diagnostic, you mentioned that, mm-hmm. t- that a typical activity. And I do like, you know what you said, I, I, I like for this talk to be more about restoring than hacks, like you said. Um, but yeah. but what does that um, outside of the okay, breath will be diagnostic? Would I use with typically in a gym. Yeah. Unfortunately, that is a very uh, open question, and it's because of the emotional states of people. Mm. Uh, what people don't realize is that breathing has a critical role to play in emotional balance and in processing emotions as well. So, for example, some people, you said your athlete did the Wim Hof method before uh, before their event. And that's great because it worked for them and, and they're just the right, right technique for the right person. Mm-hmm. But there's some people that should not touch that method and go near it with a barge pole because emotionally it will imbalance them. Okay. And then there's other people. Uh, so that's kind of the Wim Hof on one end where it's big big breathing and big rhythmical breathing combined with breath holding. On the other end, you do have the Pateka where it is uh, breath holding. Some people don't like that either, which, which is the nasty thing. So what I will do with people, if, if you're asking me, if somebody came, if somebody just said, Leo, I want a, I want a one-off session. Uh, give me a flavor of what you do. What do you do? And in terms of how would I integrate breathing into their session, I would... First of all, I give them some biomechanical breathing. So I get them doing that breath wave and practicing that. And they might spend a minute or two trying to restore that if it needed to. Uh, then they go off and do the normal warm-ups. If it's a weight session, then I'll teach them how to uh, use their breath to create tension through the kinetic chain. So in other words, a strong purse-lip exhale. <sighs> Yeah, Uh, I would use that. But then towards the end, I I do like to bring in the breath holding towards the end because one, it helps to reset them into a more of a parasympathetic state uh, and it helps to calm them down after a breathing session. So towards the end, it adds to conditioning um, without needing to flog the muscles, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and it also helps them to, if you, if you graduate it down, it helps them to um, finish a session and feel fresh. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, based off yeah, your, yeah, yeah, based off your marathon experience, absolutely. I, um, you said something about creating tension because that's something that's been interesting to me. I actually, I, it's like I had two questions left for you, but they keep adding on. <laughs> Hopefully, I can yeah. keep like it's just like you take two steps forward, one step back. I mean, not being a negative thing, I'm just saying I just keep oh, yeah. thinking about. So uh, that's something I've been thinking about a lot is using the breath to create tension through the kinetic chain. I was just, um, I spoke at a, a virtual now NSCA uh, National Strength Conditioning Regional Seminar uh, where they were talking about just that and, and, and breath techniques too. If you look at like elite athletes' faces when they're like doing a jump, you see the cheeks out, you see all this this pressure and tension that's through the, the chain. I was just watching uh, um, Darian Barra, a biomechanics and many things uh, athletics mentor to me was uh, showing a video recently with uh, it was Karsten Warholm who recently set I think the world number two all time in the 400 hurdles but it showed every time he would take a hurdle 
compared to his competitors, you could see even, of course, he's a much more pale complexion, so maybe that's why you could see it more. But, like, you could just see this, like, the, the pressure through his system every time he would, in his thorax, every mm-hmm. time he would take off over a hurdle. So what, could you just tell me a little bit about that, like, teaching people to create tension? Because that's, I think, pressurization, I think, is so often not looked at as one of these methods of creating power. Um, could you yeah. just expand on, on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, mar- martial arts have known it for centuries, if not thousands of years, right? And how to do that and also how to vocalize it as well, which creates even more tension when you need it. Um, first of all, to be able to create that, that tension through the chain, uh, you have to be able to access the, the muscles. So again, we're going back to restoring those breathing mechanics, okay? Because if, you, if your diaphragm isn't uh, moving well, if it's retracted and not moving well, then your ability to contract and move the pelvic floor is reduced as well. Um, because it all works together. That, that, as we all know, that, that interdominal pressure, that cylinder works together and it also works with the kinetic chains of the body. So if you look at... Um, the, the, the diaphragm is an external sphincter on the esophagus, right? Uh, so for the, for the mouth, down into the throat, down into the stomach, it acts as an external sphincter, which means that as the diaphragm, um, uh, sque- it squeezes in on the esophagus to prevent um, uh, food passing into the stomach, and then it can open up as well um, when, it, when it's... When the diaphragm, when you are inhaling with the diaphragm, it will open up as well to allow more food pass through the esophagus. The diaphragm sits, it's the only single muscle that sits horizontal to the whole body. So every vertical uh, column of the kinetic chain passes through it. Whether you're looking at Thomas Myers, whether you're looking at all the superficial back line, deep back line, uh, superficial and deep front lines, or, or any of the spiral lines, lateral lines, they all pass through the diaphragm at some level. Um, so, and I think of them as, as columns of that kinetic chain. So as your diaphragm, uh, as you inhale and exhale, you are either from a top-down approach, you're either creating more tension through the chain or you're releasing tension, like a corkscrew. You're either tightening it and, and in, increasing that tension between the diaphragm and the feet, or you're, you're, you're loosing it and allowing some of that tension to dissipate, uh, and with it goes power to dissipate. Okay, so once you can access the diaphragm, you can then use it to create more tension. Dr. John Dudyard was uh, actually he's quite, quite well. Not he, he's not known that well. He wrote a book in the '90s uh, on particularly Ayurvedic medicine and nose breathing as well. He, he trained a lot of uh, elite tennis players. Um, I know the forward was by Billie Jean King. And I know he trained uh, Martina Navratilova, who was a very famous tennis player. And she, in fact, she's. One of the longest serving professionals, and, and I think she won the won the highest amount of um, of majors, uh, for want of a better word, in tennis. Right? But he, he trained a lot of elite tennis players, and he would say that you should, and this is going back to the 1990s, is that you you should have an alternate step breathing pattern. So, for example, with with, with swimming, when swimmers are training, you would. And you correct me wrong because obviously you're you're a swimming coach. But from from my basics of swimming, you don't want somebody taking a a unilateral breath 
uh, stroke and every day of training uh, for swimming because they're going to overdevelop some muscles on one side and undevelop the other. Would that be accurate enough? Uh, I was actually just a strength coach for swimmers, so I can't. Okay. <laughs> I, but okay, that well, sounds right, though. Yeah, it sounds 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 appropriate. Well, well as you turn your head to uh, get air in in the water, you're going to rotate more. Let's say you're, you're turning your head to your right. You're going to rotate more through the right side of your body. You're going to have a higher elbow lift in order to get through in a front crawl. So you'll end up – and if you only turn to the right the whole time – I see this a lot with recreational swimmers is that they, they develop an imbalance and um, swimming stroke. Okay. So the same can happen with running is if you inhale only as your left foot hits the floor every single time, you create more tension through mm. the left side and less tension through the right side of the kinetic chain. And according to Dr. Dudyard, you will uh, increase the uh, likelihood of injury all the way up through that uh, left side of the chain. Uh, and, and he saw a lot of um, a lot of knee injuries and hip injuries as a result of it. Oh, that's really interesting. So, yeah, I would look also in terms of creating tension in the kinetic chain, both in terms of maximal loading. Well, can you use your exhale for strength? <laughs> Whether it's a punch, whether you want to go and produce a lot of force, or whether it's um, whether it's a sprint where you want to generate maximal force um, with with as many strides as you can, where you're then pairing your exhale with your foot strike. So, so with that, I that's really interesting with the the single leg thing, like the landing mm-hmm. breath on every leg. That actually makes me appreciate. I was just thinking about like bounding exercises, and I appreciate that. Bounding, you you can't really bound without doing it every step. So maybe there's something pressure-wise there I, I hadn't really thought of. But mm-hmm. what? So what do you do with that importance? Is there like a, a a mindful element that you're using if people are doing like like a lunge or a, even running that you're like that is in the that you're putting in their mindset to be aware of in that that context? And obviously the martial arts, yeah, like tons yeah. of stuff there. Yeah, absolutely. Like through. I mean, martial arts, it becomes innate in the martial art. Um, it, it is taught, maybe not openly as much as I would talk about it, but um, I mean, they, they, they know about the power of breathing for a long, long time. I'd be surprised if you had a sensei or a coach that wasn't aware that you use breathing to create and generate power. Uh, you work with more of the subtleties. Well, for, for general population, for athletes, yeah, running is a great way. So I'll get them starting walking and I get them just every time they take a step, you know, initially I, I get them say, okay, just like with swimming, you would say, okay, every third stroke, every fifth stroke, every seven strokes, so we might extend the length of time of one breath match to the stroke rate to develop better endurance and fitness qualities, right? So you would have a more efficient breathing system. But then if I was a sprinter, I would almost want to be, you could almost use your breath for, for power by, by uh, using a shorter breath uh, every, every couple of footfalls, maybe every three footfalls. And is what I would do. And, and it's just a matter of, of developing the rhythm. So literally when you're walking, you know, hit your left thigh as you want to inhale on that left thigh, you know, and alternate a, a left thigh slap with a right thigh slap. Um, and that's how I begin to pattern it into people. And then once they got that rhythm, like with music, once they got that rhythm, that beat, 
then they stop the slap, then they try and integrate it into a jog, into a run, into a sprint, um, until it just then becomes subconscious and innate to them. I, interesting. Yeah, I just think there's that's so cool how those things that are in the awareness field. Um, so last question, just as our time's drawing short, I know I, I wanted to just get into just a couple methods on restoring. Like you said, not to have to rely mm-hmm. on hacks and shortcuts. Not that I think those things are, are necessarily bad, but obviously we want to, we got to get to that, like the base of it all, right? So just a couple, um, like you mentioned getting the diaphragm working properly, some techniques. Like what are just a couple things that to be aware of in terms of restoring the, the I know there's obviously a lot of them and we would have a 10 hour podcast, yeah. but just some, a couple of things that can be really for that res- restoration. Well, okay. Even, even that scientific backed and research backed, the uh, very simple breathing technique is four, six breathing, breathe in for four seconds, exhale for six seconds and repeat that for two minutes. So inhale two, three, four, exhale two, three, four, five, six. You can repeat that for two minutes. Uh, It's been shown to uh, set you more into a parasympathetic state. So take you out of that high stress state and also open up the frontal lobe of the brain so that you can think more clearly. Because when you're stressed, that frontal lobe should, effectively it shuts down and you can think as clearly. That's a beautiful, beautiful technique for for helping people to drop into that state. Uh, from there, box breathing would be, I, you call it an advancement of that technique, uh, which is beautiful. People can use that both. I, I think of it like an adaptogenic technique. So it can be used to help help you to focus and, and, and become energized, for want of a better word, and also to calm and relax, depending on who you are and how you're using it. So box breathing comes from Navy SEALs. You're looking at a, it's called a box because you have an even count between inhale, hold at the top, exhale, hold at the bottom. So you pick a base number, let's say four seconds, in for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four, and you repeat that box cycle. Again, two minutes is kind of appears to be a minimum threshold but uh, if you're really enjoying it and, and, and you want to really drop into the deeper states then and maintain it then for even up to 10 minutes. If you find four seconds easy, then you can start to challenge yourself and progress yourself, move to five, six, seven, eight, eight second uh, box. I find in around seven seconds, if you can get to seven seconds, uh, then I tend to advance it to another technique again. Yeah, and, and, and it's beautiful because what it does is it also helps you to develop uh, a little bit of CO2 tolerance uh, because you got those breath holes and the control of the exhale in there, but it also helps you to develop your capacity uh, because as you go up those base numbers, uh, your, your, your ribs will begin to open more because uh, you'll have to suck more air in in order to uh, hold the tempo, hold the pace. There are two beautiful techniques that I use. Uh, I'll help use with people, particularly uh, four, six, I'll use in recovery. Uh, box breathing, I'll use in a, as a nice, calm way to get somebody focused. Four, six, again, I'll use uh, to help them to sleep better. Um, whereas uh, the box breathing, I might use more in the morning time, uh, again, to get them just more set up for the day and prepped for the day. Awesome. Um, 
so that yeah that case gets me thinking that the, like the box breathing or more the prep breathing and the focus type element because i know i think that doesn't that help like accuracy like shooting accuracy like focus like those types of things yeah absolutely and that's that's why again this is why breathing has become so popular like if you look at the all blacks rugby team if you look at uh cristiano ronaldo who would be one of the most famous soccer players in the world uh, look and see what they're doing you look at a uh, Novak Djokovic, the tennis player, is known for using the Wim Hof method. You look at Roger Federer, just there was a couple of papers written on, or there's a paper written on him recently in terms of the way he uses his nose to breathe and how calm he remains. But a lot of people, whether it's intuitive or they've just picked it up from other means, they, they, they know that breathing will help to calm them down and to help them to focus. And that's now actually been shown in science where you have a connection between your breathing rhythms and attention in the brain uh, as found in the locus coelius of the, uh, of the brain. And if you think of it from a heart rate point of view, your heart sits into the diaphragm. There's no space between the heart and the diaphragm. There's no gap. The, the pericardium of the heart actually attaches onto the diaphragm and spreads over the top of the diaphragm. So as you breathe faster, your heart rate beats faster. As you breathe slower, your heart rate beats slower. Your, your brain senses that. It automatically then calms down, opens up your thinking brain, and enables you to focus and place your attention on things for a longer period of time. Oh, I love that. I love how I love how integrated it is. Like the heart, it's like right there. Um, okay, so last question, just quickly. I know, like uh, release techniques. Like you mentioned, like manual therapy. I think just rubbing around the the ribs, diaphragm area is pretty. People have just different techniques, but is there one that you find um, any any that you find particularly effective or things people can do? I know, like RPR, be activated. There's there's that people a lot mm-hmm. are familiar with that type of thing. Uh, any anything that you find helpful or particularly useful for the different types of restoration? Uh, I would say get your hands and get feeling get mm-hmm. feeling your ribs. So underneath the ribs and breathe nice and calmly and light uh, and lightly. As you, you know, you should be able to hook your. So a simple test is if if your if your diaphragm is retracted or if it's working well is, especially lying down is when you exhale. Can you can you hook those fingers underneath your diaphragm and almost rub the insides of the rib? This has nothing got to do with how much body fat you have on you. You should be able to because the, the, the tissue should be nice and supple. Uh, you should be able to feel under there. And that's quite tense or hard. I, I think of it like, is, is it, I say to my clients, is it, is it rare? Is it like a rare steak? Is it a steak cooked rare or is it well done? You know, is it tough and hard or is it nice and supple? Vegetarians don't like me too much for that one, but <laughs> that, that's how I, because that's how, that's how meat feels, right? That's how tissue feels. So I like to use that. And if it is hard, then there's millions of ways how to bring awareness into it. But I like to breathe nice and calmly uh, and just play around in there is a nice, easy one to try and, you know, manually just soften that tissue in there. Cool. Cool. Yeah, RPR is, is fantastic. Uh, use it. They have a lot of good techniques. Uh, same with NKT, NeuroConnect Therapy. Oh, yeah. There's a few different ones. Uh, uh, yoga tune-up uh, I have more of them 
there's, there's loads of them out there. There's loads of them out there. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, ask. Yeah, I've I've done the be activated and then the NKT. So I yeah, I'm familiar. I'm just curious on your opinion. I oh, la- okay. So last quick question because you got this is for me personally very selfish. As you were talking about the things that are like I guess deficiencies or whatever, and I I do think when I catch myself sometimes holding. And how does this differ from box breathing? Because I'm very good at the box breathing type stuff, great control there. But I'm a person who I'll hold my breath at the top. I think I have a lot of tension. I think I don't think I let it fall out very well. So mm-hmm. the difference basically between a box breathing, like you're teaching box breathing, but also mm-hmm. like for someone who might be a breath holder and not just let it fall in that relaxing Correct. element. What what are some thoughts there? Or- well, this is where I will call um, box breathing a, a specialized technique. You're doing it on purpose uh, for a reason uh, versus your uh, subconscious natural breath rhythm. If you're holding your natural breathing rhythm, so we inhale either through the mouth or nose, but let's say you inhale and you hold at the top and then let it go. Or if you inhale and you kind of, purse your lips or you constrict your throat muscles to control your exhale i have found that that has very can have very serious emotional uh emotional health consequences uh, so in other words it, it's representative of you controlling your life right if, you, if you're controlling something and contracting something that should be a recoil that should be just let go well how does that unfair to the rest of your life as well, right? And um, are you the type of person that, that, you know, what happens when control is taken out of your ability, right? If that's ingrained into your breath, that is the most basic process you have. So you will drop into, I, I have found anyway, is that people will drop into anxiety patterns and panic patterns very quickly. Uh, th- those types of people that have that, sorry, that have that, controlled exhale or that breath hold will drop into anxiety and panic patterns uh, very quickly when control is taken from them in life mm. or when things become disorganized and they're not able to cope. Whereas if you can, even if you're that type of person inclined, if you can repattern that breath, right? Well then when, when, when you lose control in life or when life throws you a curveball. You can quite simply return to that breath to help to center you to then be able to think clearly and make a plan. Does that make sense? Yeah. So for me, the, the, the biomechanics and the physiology, your body dictates what happens up there in the mind and when, uh, when the shitstorm comes or when, when, when chaos ensues, right? Yeah, I was trying that as you were talking. I was like, "Oh, this is great! I got to do this." <laughs> yeah, everyone knows more about me now since they're uh, since I'm explaining my uh, my breathing patterns and where the emotion come from. So I I will be working on that, and uh, nice. I, I love that. Well, hey, I, I think that's about man. I would love to. There's obviously this is such a huge topic, and I've asked tons of questions, but I think that that's the end of our time together. Man, Leo, thank you so much. Um, I have a lot of things to work on. I'm sure all of us listening do as well, and uh, I'm excited for the next time we get to talk. I'm sure I'll be. I'll be following what you're doing. So uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more about all this? 
Yeah, sure. My uh, on on Instagram, my handle is at I am Leo Daniel. Uh, I have a website called innatestrength.com. That's innate-strength.com. And you'll find it there. I put all my, mainly my, my breathing stuff is what I do online. So I have a, for example, I have a 12 week project, which is a group training program. And it takes people through that restorative phase into a phase of training of breathing and teaches them how to apply it to sport. And, and, and I have a, a variety of sports and a mixture both from power to endurance in there and everything in between. Uh, but uh, through the, through the webinars, I coach you uh, live how to apply um, once it's trained, how to apply your breathing to sport. And then I have one-to-one coaching and online too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Leo. I, I really appreciate your time. I have so much to think about. So until next time, have a good one, man. My absolute pleasure, Joel. Thank you for having me. Oh man, that was such an expansive show. Thanks for tuning in. And I know my uh, knowledge game on breathing and breath was definitely up there. And I hope yours was too. I'm sure it was. There's so much great stuff on that. And I, lots of stuff for me to continue on my own educational and coaching journey with. So before I get out of here, if you enjoyed the show and could leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Stitcher, whatever you're listening to, I'd really appreciate that. And it really helps us out uh, just spreading the message of this show to those people that would find it useful. Also wanted to give a shout out to our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. They've been a longtime sponsor of this show and we really appreciate them. All right, we'll see you guys next week.